Welcome to episode 70 of Paper Talk. Wow, 70. A series of podcast interviews featuring artists and professionals who are working in the field of hand paper making and paper art. I'm Helen Hebert and I run Helen Hebert Studio, a hand paper making studio in Colorado's Rocky Mountains, where I create artist books and installations. I also host the annual Red Cliff Paper Retreat and paper making masterclasses here in the studio. And I teach online classes about paper, light, and books too. Find out more at HelenHebertStudio.com. Today I'm talking with John Sullivan, who started Logos Graphics 46 years ago when he moved to San Francisco, California. Logos Graphics transitioned from offset lithography to letterpress printing in 2000. It was letterpress printing that sparked John's interest in the subtleties of paper. As digital presses captured a larger portion of the print market, there was a narrowing of paper texture, color, and thickness. Ten years ago, John started saving the offcuts from Crane's Letra 100% cotton paper, then beading, coloring, and forming that cotton pulp into new paper for short-run broadsides. Five years ago, a CNC router was added to the shop and opened the door to carving three-dimensional molds for cast paper. After seeing Brian Queen's 3D-printed mold decal and laid mold surfaces, John acquired a 3D printer and has been creating molds and decals with interchangeable mold surfaces up to 16 by 20 inches and in assorted shapes as well. I have a small mold and decal and I'm really excited about the possibility of the interchangeable mold surfaces for watermarking. Enjoy our conversation. Well, John Sullivan, welcome to Paper Talk. Well, thank you, Helen. It's great to be invited to uh, this great series that you've uh, done over the over the years. Oh, yeah, thank you. I remember meeting you at the Codex Book Fair in 2011 or 13, I don't know which yeah. one, yeah. in Berkeley. And you, yeah, we started talking about watermarking. Oh. So, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, that's right. And then I did cut vinyl before you before you became a proud cricket owner. Yeah, which I'm still fumbling with. I'm just not a technology person. But anyways, <laughs> I'm looking forward to hearing about your journey with paper. So tell me a little bit about where you grew up and um, what uh, kind of creative things did or any influences you think you had that led to your well, where you grew are up in the in the in the Central Valley of California, in Fresno, um, okay. California, and um, I was things you don't realize that you were fortunate with at the time. Um, so I was born in 1948. Um, there were nine boys and one girl in the two blocks surrounding my house, and so we had uh, basically enough people for every kind of sport you could play after school. And the and of course there were very few organized after school right. sports things then, so um, and my dad had uh, bought the vacant lot next to the house that we grew up in, moved a, a building in there, and built this and had a twenty by forty workshop with virtually every woodworking tool you, you could imagine, oh. and always had a project. He was, always had something that he was working on. Plus, this is in the era when you could, if you were capable, you could work on your own cars. So mm -hmm. we had an engine hoist and could pull engines out of cars. And my brother, who's four years older than I was, really 
took to that. I never had much affinity for, for cars. I could work on them, but it was from an economic point of view, not a passion uh -huh. point of view. Uh -huh. And it really wasn't. <clears throat> um, so high school, junior high, all those things, they're a blur that uh, is easily swept aside. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> from uh from my creative growth i you know it was i survived them uh -huh. pretty much yeah. intact and then getting out of high school um vietnam was going the draft was in force and um i went into the navy in a, a two by six reserve i had two years active duty and then attended um reserve meetings for for four years and that two years in the Navy put the first seed of a fire in me. And that was that I knew I needed to own my own business. Um. That I was now done working for people who demanded my respect because of their position, not because of their superior ability or capability of doing things. Mm -hmm. So then when I um, went through Fresno State College with a art major and no minor, didn't want to be encumbered by some curriculum, but the other classes I took were all theater classes and, um, and dance classes. And just because of my nature, I was drawn to the technical side of theater and started doing lighting design for uh, the local community theater. And I always, I started as a designer. I didn't go hang lights for somebody else. I had an, had an opportunity, and this is where uh, a quote from, that I heard from John Cage, uh, but is attributed to Pascal, which is chance favors the prepared mind. Mm -hmm. And and when these opportunities have, have come to me, I've somehow managed to optimize them, be successful in them, and then they led to additional opportunities at higher levels. So, so I want to just ask a question before you go on. Um, why did you study art? Like, what were you thinking? Well, I... Um, I was working with, an, there was a coffee house in Fresno that I was involved in, and um, they, um, well, I don't know, because I even, in June, in the community, club, I don't, I have no idea okay. why I signed up for art classes. Okay. <laughs> so. And the, theater? Was there a reason behind the theater? Well, um, no. Okay. I, All right. You know. I, and and in that time period, I did migrate more from the theater department to the dance department because dancers are at that time. My wife, who's a dancer, uh -huh. um, were less verbal mm. than the theater people. <laughs> so and now being married to her for 44 years, her verbal skills are greatly enhanced. <laughs> so. Um, and I used to call her a retired dancer, and then I have now realized that dancers never retire. Uh -huh. They dance their whole lives to the best of their ability to move and, and right. perform. But um, the thing of, and uh, so then getting out of uh, Fresno State, I 
was I was done with Fresno, which mm -hmm. was good. So this is 1974, and I moved to San Francisco. And a, I had assembled a print shop in my parents' garage. I had a little Multilith 1250, and I had a process camera, which is the kind of cameras that were used to, when people would bring in a mechanical, a uh, pasted-up board that was going to get turned into print, those would need to have negatives shot on them. And uh, this, again, was just, I had... I was, a, I was doing screen printing for a guy who built these cameras and he took one in on trade and offered me a deal on it and, and my folks co-signed a loan and I got it. So I came to San Francisco and the one thing that I had realized that if, when I got out of bed, if I didn't swing around and put my feet on my artwork, I wasn't gonna make art that day. So I was very fortunate that I found a studio in, in Project Arto, which is an arts community in the Mission District of San Francisco, and is celebrating its 50th year uh, in April of uh, 2021. So in 1974, I, I was able to get a studio space in there, um, and then was able to move the print shop out of my parents' garage in there and started um, mastering because uh, I never I hadn't worked in a print shop. I hadn't taken any classes in print. I just had this press and this camera and I started shooting film and teaching myself how to run the press. And um, then as luck would have it, uh, Margaret Jenkins Dance Company, because um, I was still involved with dance and dancers, um, uh, had a, uh, there was a, a recession going on then too. Mm -hmm. And there was the CETA, Comprehensive Employment Training Act. And she got a grant for a lighting designer and technical director. And I got hired in that position and then worked for her for the next eight years as an NEA touring company, Touring America, lighting the dance company all on stages all across America. Oh, and wow. Canada. Uh huh. And at the same time, I had the print shop, but it was all with paid-for equipment. So we would go off on tour with, for six weeks, and I would just pull the shade down on the print shop door. And and practically everybody I printed for were other performing artists. Um, so I was just, you know, that's the pond we swam in, being in this arts community building, uh, being involved in the dance company and then printing for other primarily for other dancers and so was uh was your wife involved in the same dance company she was a dancer in that company right okay yeah. and so, what were you printing like posters and promotional materials yeah i had a, a 14 by 20 inch press at that time um okay. and i had for for 200 dollars, you could get an 11 by 14 poster this is all on one sheet the 11 by 14 posters, and then there was a little chain of uh, four by six postcards. There were five, I could fit five four by six postcards and this little poster onto the one press sheet. And for 200 bucks, I would run 500 sheets of, of that. So you get 2,000 postcards and, and 500 posters. And wow. uh, so th that was this, you know, this little thing I figured out to suit 
uh, that, that clientele. And this was Offset? This was Offset Litho, yeah. Okay, okay. And that was the first of uh, 13 presses that I've owned, bought and owned in the ensuing years. The last three presses I have bought have been letter presses, but the, all the ones before that were uh, increasingly sophisticated uh, Offset Litho presses. And I, and I also have an etching press, and mm -hmm. I also have a screen printing press. So uh, the, we do uh, a couple of jobs a year for, for clients, so. Okay, and um, are you still in the same studio? I'm still in the same studio, yeah. Oh, and it's, okay. a, it's a live work studio. So we lived and worked there for 24 years. Okay. And then in about 1996, our son was 10, and um, at that time, the shop was doing upwards of 300000 a year. And uh, I told Sue I needed to go home from work. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so we were very fortunate. We, uh, down, we were down buying cat food at, at a discount cat, you know, cat food warehouse place. Yeah. We saw a little open house for the condominium that I'm I'm sitting in today, uh, uh, and bought this for um, under under two hundred thousand dollars, and it's of course worth four times that now. Oh yeah, wow. So, uh, but uh, cool. But then, so then with the living out of the out of the studio, then the studio the studio was able to blossom more, and it has a. a it's a large studio. It's uh, over 2,000 square feet. Okay. Has a 700 square foot sprung oak dance floor for my wife, and mm. then the print shop is next door. It's about 800 square feet, and um, has has housed all these different presses and film processors. And um, at the height, I had five employees. Um, okay. The uh, and that's in the letterpress era. That was. Uh, or up to and just after the Great Recession. Okay, so let, of let's kind of go back and sort of move forward again. So okay. from from printing this $200, <laughs> these $200 gigs uh -huh. for dance and theater companies, um, tell me how you got to making over 300000 a year. So, okay. yeah. Well, um, so somewhere um, this in some place in the 80s or early 80s, um, the uh, strong Strom Thurman and some of these Dixiecrats and stuff like that that were bludgeoning NEA. Um, the, basically, the the dance company. Uh, we were just touring less and less and less, mm -hmm. and it just became difficult to, to justify the two things. So I, I retired from theater, basically, and Sue was winding down her her career, and we had our son in 1988. Okay. Um, there were uh, four women dancers that all left the company at the same time and were all pregnant <laughs> six <laughs> months later. <laughs> so, uh. <laughs> but... Uh, so, uh, and that was um, prior, prior to that, the shop had been building, but basically that was the sort of the thing that, that turned me from a, a night theater worker to a day 
print shop owner. And um, in 1986 is when I bought um, my, uh, uh, I don't know, probably fifth press. And that was a Heidelberg uh, GTOZ. I think I sent you a picture of that. Yeah. And that's a $200,000 press. Right. So you you need to make a commitment to print. Yeah. And uh, and that's when I, I so I hired a pressman at that time, and that was the first real uh, commitment to employees. Mm-hmm. Hired a, 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 a image assembler, a guy who ran camera and, and stripped the negatives. Uh, six months later, and those two guys worked for me for 14 years, up until 2000 um, and the dot com crash. And um, so in that in that whole time, that was the rise of offset lithography. In 1999, there were over a billion square feet of offset lithographic plates manufactured. And by 2006, that had been reduced to about 450 million square feet of offset. Right. And just a, a little aside, 1962 is the year that there were more letter or more offset litho impressions than letterpress impressions. Uh, Two, 2006 was the year that there was more digital impressions than offset litho impressions. So we've, we've seen these sea changes yeah. happen in print. I think they're coming to our perception of reality and and I have thoughts about how they're going to affect book arts and paper making and things like that. But they're happening more quickly and they're much more powerful than they were previously, I think. Yeah, um, I want to just say that in 1988, I was living in New York City and um, just sort of fell into a job working for a commercial printing company and called Rappaport Printing down on Hudson Street, which was a big printing district in New York then. And we had big Heidelberg presses and other kinds. I don't remember all the names, Mm -hmm. but um, I was the traffic manager. So I was in charge of getting things from the print shop down to the bindery and then out to the client, getting the office copies, like the two perfect copies to send to the client and all kinds of things you certainly know about. And you mentioned the mechanicals earlier. So Mm -hmm. for those people who are just digital listening to this, like paste up and mechanicals were actually physical things that you had to like place the type and use rubber cement and move things around by hand instead and, of on the computer. Just such a different world. Yeah, I still have some some of those in the uh, shop. And when we would get either students from CCA or Art Institute in from the graphic design programs, they would look at them and they would like put the sign of the cross up saying, oh no, this is terrible. I could never do that. So, but yeah. So, and that's, yeah, this, um, and that's how come I thrived, continued to thrive in print because I was an early adopter of, of computer right. stuff. So um, I had all these kids getting out of art school who later became hot designers came into me because I was friendly and congenial and struggled through the 
the transition to getting their work from the computer onto them. And, uh, so that was the basis, Tom Bonaro and uh, Rudy Vanderlands and Bob Offeldish, some of these um, uh, graphic designers who've gone on to, to big careers, um, uh. were basically, uh, I was a trade shop, so I never, hardly ever dealt with uh, end users. Um, and, uh, but they had these very tight relationships with a handful of designers. Right. Oh, that's cool. Because in New York, I worked for a company called The Actualizers for a while, and they were um, in the building with Pushpin Graphics. I don't know if the Pushpin Group, Seymour Quast, mm -hmm. and some designers, famous designers in New York, graphic designers, and they would help graphic designers uh, ingest for print so that it would be economical. Okay. And yeah. Uh, yeah, cool. Um, so what kind of things were you printing then when your your offset shop was in its heyday? Well, we did um, in the early 90s, um, I basically cornered the market uh, of art galleries. Oh. So we were running a lot of uh, um, for color postcards and small catalogs and stuff. Um, we um, we're really servicing that market and um, a lot of the uh, Cap Street project, a, uh, New Langton Arts, um, these galleries were really, they had large print budgets mm -hmm. and a lot of their announcements weren't announcements, they were actually objects uh. that would, you know, if they had die cutting and, and multicolor and just they, and like I say, they um, like uh, New Langdon Arts. They would select a, a designer, and the designer would design for them for a year. Um, and so then the, I would have a sort of this evolutionary growth over the year with that designer about well, we did this this time. Well, what can we do this next one? What can we do this next one? What can we do this next one? Mm -hmm. And um, so I've never been a, a multi-part carbonless printer uh, I've always done the difficult stuff um, metallics on translucent sheets were the backup there's all these things going with on with the translucency that need to be viewed from both sides and in register front to back and so it's just I've always been able to execute at a high level of craft mm-hmm um, which is why it, it, it kept being interesting. Right. Wow. And did you, um, did you do everything in house or did you send out for die cutting and things like that? We, we didn't die cut then. We, I later added die cutting, um, after 2000, but, okay. uh, at that time and, and at the time we, we, uh, so die cutting and this was in the pre-digital yeah, die cutting it. It was a tremendous art and craft to yeah. you know, cut the block and put the rule in and stuff like that. So, but I had close relationships with the die makers and die cutters for that part of the process. So we would print and then yeah, then uh, and we had, had uh, and then we would we'd go to bindery or the die cutter or whatever for finishing. Yeah, so because I only have eight hundred square feet. In right, the shop. right. <laughs> so right. we. Um, and there was just the three of us. It was just myself and the pressman and the and the pre press guy. So um, so we 
you know, so we just, yeah, did, you know, did what was, what was appropriate for the press sizes that we had and, uh, and our resources. And then in 94, there was a recession mm-hmm. that came through and, and swept most of the art galleries off the table. Right. And uh, so then we then rebuilt from there um, with uh, Paulette Traverso and some other designers who were doing larger direct mail pieces at that time. Around that time, I bought a 40 inch press. So this is now a press that can handle a 28 by 40 inch sheet of paper at 10,000 sheets per hour. Right. So we turned it into a much higher production um, shop. And it, the dot-com crash, I had the recognition that everything was changing. I sold that 40-inch press, and with the money from that press, I bought letterpress equipment. Uh-huh. Because I saw the fork on the road as digital, which I had no interest in, mm-hmm. buying some HP Indigo or something like that. And my good friend, Julie Holcomb, who's a, a premier letterpress printer, uh, was getting a divorce and was selling a press to buy her husband off. <laughs> and I bought that press. And so, uh, and so then that's actually then what uh, tr- got me into the letterpress. And I was back to working the shop by myself. Okay. And so did you... Did you think, okay, now that things are going digital, people are going to be more interested in letterpress? Or do you, was that just sort of happened? I like the equipment. You like the equipment? Yeah. So I, I saw that press verse and said, I can run this press. Yeah. And then what about the computer? Like um, you, you mentioned that, you know, you were interested in computers. Yeah. Um, well, by this time we had a we had an image setter. So... Okay. Although our whole film stream was was digital, we were taking cork files. And, right. Uh, <laughs> so, I remember uh, those. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, everybody loved to hate cork, but uh, so we were so we were in the the pre-press side. We were firmly ensconced in digital. It's just that uh, I was still an ink on on paper guy. Right. And um, and the first two jobs I did letterpress was. Uh, one was a bat mitzvah, uh-huh. and then I did a wedding invitation. And this is I'm I'm this I'm I was a little grumpy then too, <laughs> um, and I thought, my God, there's got to be something else to do with letterpress than these two kinds of jobs working with clients. Yeah. So then I I went off on this whole trajectory of blending letterpress and offset. Uh, with the the remaining graphic designers and like uh, some of the uh, 11 plus was a probably still is a hot design firm and at that time they had like um, 15 sort of like what you were a uh, job trackers and uh-huh. uh, you know seven of them were uh, offset eight of them were digital and but by the time I quit working for them they had 11 one of them was offset 10 of them were digital so but um, and then about 2006 uh, Lars Kim came to work for me I want I want you to describe a an offset letterpress project okay so well what we uh, 
the characteristic of letterpress is the mark. Mm -hmm. So, um, and this is uh, the the primary sheet that we were using at this time. When um, when I first started, there were still papers being you know in the 70s and into the 80s. There were still papers being made specifically for letterpress. Those had all gone. Um, but the there was a Strathmore made a sheet um, Strathmore writing um, 88 wove cover so the basis weight of the sheet was 88 so it was a little bit thicker it was a loftier sheet so it would take a nice mark but it was still a highly sized sheet so that the offset inks would sit up and be bright and uh, and successful for the things you expect from from offset so then we would um, generally run, um, all the ink would be run offset. Okay. And then we would pick that up and put it on, I had a KS Heidelberg cylinder at that time. We would then pick that sheet up and move it over onto the letterpress and come in and basically like with an illuminated, uh, thick, you know, first cap on a line or something like that. Then we would come in and do in-register letterpress hits on selected elements so that it suddenly became this tactile piece ah. where then the the level of engagement went from seven seconds to 22 seconds where people would oh i'm gonna you know if, if it's a trifold i'm gonna you know un, unfold the actually the third thing i i don't give a any i don't care about the content <laughs> but it's a really cool piece <laughs> so, right. so then that was the 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 kind of thing that we were able to uh, enhance with the pieces um, and then um, and you were able to print more colors in the offset than like the reason you didn't do it all letterpress was that it was more efficient right it was more oh. yeah so the uh, um, the make the make ready times in offset are a quarter mm -hmm. of what they are for letterpress and the uh, so the and the offset press runs at 80 sheets a minute right um so which you you pay attention or or <laughs> whoops you're lost. whereas the it, the uh the letterpress just is it's a much slower print process it's much more difficult to print well letterpress right and um so then in um 2000 eight I sold my offset press mm. um, so which w was a traumatic thing yeah. for me because uh -huh. that press was a, a big part of my identity as a as a printer and I didn't know whether I was still going to be a, a printer so and was but, this uh, the press that you that was two hundred thousand dollars? Right, which yeah, and that was. So how much can you you sell that for? I sold it for twenty thousand, and now they're selling. and now they're selling for two thousand. Oh wow! So okay. it's barely worth it to pick because yeah. there was still still a demand in Central Mexico and South America for those presses, but that's now the digital equipment is aged out enough that that those things are going down there and, mm -hmm. and eclipsing right. that market. So then we went full letterpress, but at that time, Lars Kim, who's a Korean woman, mm -hmm. um, and she had come through on an open studio. It's our building opens up twice a year 
to have people through. Uh-huh. And I got this email from Lars Kim and uh, saying, I really love that the Heidelberg wind, or, you know, the press that you did a demo on and I uh, would like to come talk to you. And I said, oh yeah, I remember that big blonde guy. Uh, and then, you know, we emailed back and forth and then this uh, young Korean woman shows up. And at that time I was doing a, a hand-sewn book structure for, for Tom Benaro. Um, and we were doing 350 of them. Mm-hmm. And I was on like number 80 and sick of it. Yeah. And uh, so she came in and, and I said, well, I really don't do interns because it's such a dangerous shop. I have to have workers comp. And, and she said, OK. And so then she sat down and started sewing these things and said, well, what's your website look like? And to quote uh, tra- Treasure of Sierra Madre, we ain't got no stinking website. And uh, so then she's, you know, so then she started putting a website up for me. And I said, oh, my God, if this woman leaves, I'm lost. Right. So then we spent the next 14 years together and she was then the interface to the bat mitzvahs, bar mitzvahs, brides, Uh, all those kinds of things where I could say, you know, you shouldn't choose that green. It's not going to do this, but would just sort of stand off and, and stay out of the way for her great customer service skills and uh yeah and you could do what you loved which is the technical troubleshooting yeah yeah mm-hmm. cool. ah. so um and then we went through um a huge uh surgeons and we were making plates for about 80 other letterpress printers on the oh. west coast at that time we were in just in consumption of plate material we were spending almost three thousand dollars a month buying plate material that then we were reselling to other printers. And then when the Great Recession came through, it just swept that whole thing off the table. Yeah. All these little uh, folks who were doing wedding invitations out of their, on their Chandler and Prices in their garages, that, that whole thing just collapsed. And by the time we came out of that, digital and laser and uh, foil had become dominant in the wedding industry look right and so it's just a small letterpress printer there's still a fair number of folks doing that and there's a growing number doing it on handmade paper you you had uh, share studios on and she seems to be doing pretty well in that market niche uh, supplying paper to these wedding printers right yeah i actually worked at oblation papers in portland also which Mm -hmm. is they actually make their paper and do the letterpress printing. Okay. Um, yeah. I want to ask about the plate maker. Is that an expensive machine? Is that the reason that you were making plates for so many other letterpress printers? Or what's the reason that letterpress printers didn't have well, those? Well, um, the, so the, the plate making is a, is a multi-step process. When you get the digital file in, right, and then that, that needs to be run to film. So, and the running to film is actually the difficult part okay. of that process. Um, you need an image setter, you need a film processor. The film processor uses $100 worth of chemistry a month, whether you want one piece of film or okay. 100 pieces of film. Okay, right. And um, so, uh, and then the the plate makers, if you buy them new, yeah, they're uh, $14,000, $15,000. 
I got mine from a closing shop for 750 and then have been able to keep it going ever since. But it's, it's really the film that's the diff- difficult part of the equation. And got it. so, and then, yeah, so then we, and we had a, I had a, a great line of, um, what's that, I think it's called OCD, um, obsessive compulsive. Uh-huh, disorder, yeah. Yeah, you know, who were just meticulous with the plate making, you know, just the serifs were there, the punctuation was there, and, and we just, and I felt like we sent, and and then again, I, I gained a deep understanding of this for, uh, we sh- tended to what we call short shoot, we shot the plate, plates a little less than recommended, which gave you deeper counters on your A's and E's and B's, so that if you were a little bit over ink, those counters still stayed clean and open. And so I felt like our plates printed with greater latitude than people who who were just doing it by the numbers. Hey listeners, let's take a little break here, and I want to tell you about the paper year, which is going online this year in 2021. This is an annual subscription club, kind of like a year-long online class, featuring a new paper project every month. Get inspired with video and written project instructions designed to spark ideas that keep you creating for the rest of the month. Explore creative paper techniques, including origami, pop-ups, paper weaving, book arts, paper cutting, and more. And join our growing community of paper lovers online to learn and share in a warm, encouraging, supportive, creative community. Visit HelenHebertStudio.com to find out more and hold your spot. Registration opens again in early April of 2021. I forgot to ask you, this just popped into my mind, like how you learn to print. Like, did you just learn by doing it all along? Yeah. yeah. All along. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I, I guess I, and I learned, I ended up teaching at Graphic Arts Institute, which is the union school. Okay. Uh, I ended up teaching uh, pre-press down there. And they, the reason that they brought me in was because all the union people live in, in silos. You're a pre-press guy, you're a bindery guy, you're a press guy, you're this guy. And they weren't cross-trained, whereas I could do... I could come in and fill mm. in for any other teacher oh, in yeah. any phase and have competent skills that I could share with people and also an underlying enthusiasm. Yeah. So, because to me, it's never been a job. Right. It's always been a passion. Yeah. That's so cool. Okay. I know I want to move on to paper making because I know you're mm-hmm. doing that now, but before we do that, I want to, um, you mentioned like the letter, I want to talk about paper. So the, okay. you mentioned the letterpress papers that used to be made. I'm wondering if you can throw out a couple of names and then those weren't made anymore. And then just what papers, commercial papers you like. Yeah. Yeah. I was actually tr- trying to think of those names, um, <laughs> yesterday okay. and, and they eluded me. Okay. Um, they were, and we were at that at the time that I was running them. This is in the early '80s. There was one graphic designer that always spec them, and they were terrible for offset. Oh. They were very lowly sized. They linted uh-huh. uh, onto the rollers, and uh, 
you know, they were just so different and characteristic to what we were accustomed to that you, you know, basically you had to, you know, kind of drop back and punt and, and develop a whole work, different work strategy for them. Um, and also the letterpress inks are, are very, when they, when they were the dominant ink, they're very differently ground than offset inks. The letterpress inks tended to wear out the uh. offset plates because they're so gritty. So now we all letterpress printers actually print with offset inks, which uh. don't give nearly as interesting an ink film as the traditional letterpress inks. Hmm. But um, Crane's Letra was really the first big um, reemergence of letterpress papers. And okay. um, when it, and this would have been some someplace in the 2000s was when it was, it was introduced. And when it first came out, it was uh, not a like-sided sheet. It had a oh. felt and a wire side, which for those of us that use uh, lots of traditional production techniques like a work and turn, yeah. where you have a have a front and back on the same sheet of paper and then you flip it over and run the other side through, then suddenly you're you've got felt on felt fronts on some and wire fronts right. on others and and you're having to to make a um, a decision about that. And Cranes has is now actually uh, a Nina sheet. Uh, Cranes sold it off. And it's much more digital friendly and not nearly as interesting a paper as it was when it first hit the market. Mm. Um, but it and um, Mohawk and uh, what we actually ended up going to is to a lot of European sheets, color plan, which is 100 um. percent cotton uh, sheet and has fabulous color palette out of England. And then we run uh, from Reich. Uh, paper, uh, a German mill. We run their Savoy line, mm -hmm. which is similar to Letra, but is a, it's a little harder sheet. It, um, so you have to smack it, uh, a little more if you have a press that has that capability to, to get a distinctive mark on it. And then Gamund is making some, uh, um, they're, they're not, um, sheets in a traditional letterpress vein like that are lofty sheets that you get a great mark on but um, they we did some they have a one that's a Bach beer byproducts it's oh. a really dark rich sheet and we've done some really nice uh, combination because we I still screen print and it screen prints beautifully oh. and uh, they also have a tobacco sheet uh, which is made from tobacco uh -huh. um, and uh, it has a uh, great holdout characteristics the ink film on it's very interesting so um, um, and where are you sourcing uh, your papers do you have like a distributor or do you find all well, of these or yeah astro converters which is or I think they're called astro paper now uh -huh. um, they're in Southern California down closer to, to San Diego um, is uh, who we buy a lot of this from, okay. and announcement converters uh, also, and they're they're for smaller. We have a big cutter, so we can bring in parent sheets and break them down. Right. But uh, um, announcement converters, you can order twelve by. They'll break stuff down for you, and you know, bring let 
you can bring stuff in closer to press sheet size or press sheet size. So, and and you're not having to buy, you know, hundreds of sheets. You're right. able to buy 50, 75, 80 sheets. So they're, you know, they're, you know these papers are more widely stocked on the West Coast now. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Cool. Most, mostly, we, I think they're out of Connecticut, and that's, I think, where we get. So you just need to plan a little bit for some of their sheets. So Right. And so let's uh, let's go to papermaking. Well, the thing that drove me to papermaking was um, before um, when Letra was the only. Mm. So I already had letter. I already had letterpress equipment in the shop. Right. And Letra was the only the only game in town for a what we define a great uh, printing letterpress sheet, and all the all the other paper lines were going to a color palette of eight kinds of white. They were all 17 thousandths thick because that's the thickest paper you could put through an eight HP indigo. Uh, they were all smooth. Right. They were all like-sided. And um, and you, I could just see this er erosion of interest in mm. service, servicing unusual substrates so um and i had just finished uh, dart hunter's book on mm. the history of uh, paper and um so i we have a free table in the building so i picked a, a blender up off the free table and uh in three hours managed to burn it out yeah so <laughs> you, you get a little greedy <laughs> you know can you take more we need more right 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 what so, year was this about uh, this would have been um, it probably would have been close to eight years, eight to ten years ago. Okay. Yeah, yeah probably mm -hmm. closer to ten years ago. So um, and then I uh, went over to Magnolia Editions, uh, Don Farnsworth's yeah. uh, place, and um, I forget the name of the guy who who ran the paper department, but he was still there then. David Kimball, yeah. Yeah, David Kimball, and he was very generous with with me. Uh, we you know walked around and looked at their different beaters and and what they were doing, and and he said, oh, we've got this hydropulper over here, which was basically a stainless steel sink with a garbage disposal on it, and I thought, oh, okay. So then I got home, went on Craigslist, and found a three horsepower, three phase garbage disposal out of a hospital that was getting remodeled, mm -hmm. and bought that home or bought it, 200 bucks, and put some plumbing on it so that it recirculated the pulp. And, um, and I could put a pound and a half of dry fiber in that, and in about a half an hour, it would be what I thought was a great looking pulp. It would also be 170 degrees because mm. of the tremendous friction and <laughs> force of this of this garbage disposal grinding this stuff up. And it and is a, what pulp were you using? Um, this I was buying um, uh, cotton. Cotton, yeah. So from uh, a paper making supplier. Yeah, and then yeah. we also had we were also running a bunch of Somerset at that time, so I had a bunch of Somerset offsets, uh -huh. okay. offcuts, and stuff like that. We were just throwing everything in, and, yeah. and we had a lot of Cranes Letra. Actually, that's what that's what we were running. We were running offcuts of Cranes Letra. I hadn't started buying uh, fiber yet, so okay. this was all reprocessed uh, Cranes stuff. 
And then the the big thing um, that happened was I sold off my Heidelberg cylinder press because um, I got I got tired of it, mm-hmm. and um, I bought a CNC because I looked at that and said I can run that machine. I had and, no idea. Okay. What, what were you, What were you going to make with it? I had, didn't have the faintest okay, idea. Okay, you didn't. All right. No. So didn't just I just it was cool. Yeah. So and it was a kit. It was you know 150 pounds of steel and screws and stuff like that. Okay. So that took me a month to. My mom had just passed away and I needed a contemplative process uh-huh. project. Yeah. So that uh, so that was it. And then Restoration Hardware uh, approached me about making big letterpress plates and running those through the etching press onto uh, BFK to get, you know, this embossed or debossed type onto a big sheet. Because the letterpress can only take a smaller sheet? Well, yeah, because the letterpress can only take, and also doesn't have the the force of an etching press to to make the mark. Yep. And uh, I had just finished uh, Mabel Grummer's paper casting book, going through and looking at the great pictures and stuff like that. Uh Uh And I had the CNC, and I told them, um, we need to do this as cast paper. And they said, what the hell is cast paper? Right. And so um, I took. I talked. We talked him into letting me do a sample piece, and we did a, a quote from Thoreau, where I carved a foam mold, pulped in my garbage disposal, cast the piece, and um, and then showed it to them, and they said, "Oh yeah," because we were getting you know three eighths of an inch relief on on this these multi dimensional cast pieces. And in retrospect, I was so fortunate to have the garbage disposal because it beat the pulp perfectly for paper casting. I didn't know about overbeaten pulp. I didn't know about high shrinkage. I didn't know about any of this stuff. But the serendipity of that moment was that the garbage disposal made the perfect pulp for doing these huge cast paper pieces. And these are 22 by 30 inches cast paper pieces. And were you casting pulp into that mold, or were you making sheets and casting we, onto it? I made so we uh, the the process that I did at that time was I formed really thick sheets on. I took screen printing frames and basically put egg crate underneath them to support them, and then stretcher made a stretcher bar decal. Um, and so then I would form really thick sheets mm-hmm. um, that then I would put on the vacuum table and do a light drawdown so that basically the sheet then had enough structure to be picked up and laid into the to the mold. And then we would take stencil brushes, those little brunt, yeah. like a, a pochoire brush, yep. right. And we would sit and we would tap, 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 tap down to get it until we saw the conforming. So we would do one layer of that, and then we would do an, another layer to build structure to the piece. And the agreement I had with um, Restoration Hardware was um, I would make nine of these a week, okay? 
So, uh -huh. And these uh, were like display in their store, or what were they? No, they they sold them in. Um, sold them. Yeah. So they then we took them over to a framer. They were framed and and they they were eight hundred bucks. Right. You know, I didn't of course get that much, <laughs> but but I was glad glad for the work. So yeah. this this wasn't. So then we, I learned, I had to learn how to manufacture these things, you know, how to, yeah. so we, we carved three molds and uh, then I worked out this elaborate system of stacking the molds with uh, square aluminum tubing, blowing air through those so that they would dry in 12 hours. And then we could, the next day we would come in, pop those out, cast the next set, and you know that would go on so the monday and tuesday i would beat because it took uh, about 12 pounds of of dry fiber to get a, have enough pulp to create right. these things so but it, it was a 10 you know we got over ten thousand dollars out of this project so it was it was worth it and um and that's again that's chance favors the prepared mind right that uh i happen to have all this stuff around so, and the, and happened to have the right beater for, for this particular project. So yeah. It wasn't until um, then when I I bought a my second beater I was built at tech shop in Atlanta. Uh huh. Some some guys got together and I think they built three beaters down there, and then I bought one of them off eBay. Okay. And uh, it was a pound and a half beater, and. Um, served me well um, for another probably three or four, maybe five years. I don't know exactly how long I had it. Mm -hmm. um, and But it, again, was was not nearly as aggressive as the Reina I have now. So I didn't learn about high shrinkage until I started beating stuff in the Reina and beat the crap out of it. <laughs> right. And what size Reina do you have? The two and a half pound. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. So. All right. Um, okay. We need to like speed along now because okay. you do so much and you're, it's so fascinating. So everybody, you have to check out Logos Graphics, which is John's company online. Mm -hmm. And um, so what are you doing today? Give us a snapshot. And I, it's, it's, uh, it's December, 2020. We're still in COVID madness. Mm -hmm. Well, the big thing I've been working on since March, um, when basically the, the print shop shut down, mm -hmm. is I've been um, at the at the Iowa City uh, Dart Hunter, uh, American Handmade Paper, the age. North whatever. American Hand Paper Makers Thank meeting. You. They have a conference uh, every year. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, Brian Queen was there and Don Farnsworth, and they had one of their little um, A5 size 3D printed um, molds and decals. Yeah. And with the laid mold surface, and and uh, Brian generously uh, put those files up. They're up on Don Barnsworth's uh, site, Magnolia Paper. And I was able to download those and um, went out and tried to get the mold surface printed, but it didn't print well. So, um, and I'm gonna. I'm an equipment buyer. I, you know, have been buying equipment for a long time. Yeah. So I, I bought a 3D printer, thinking, okay, I'm gonna do this. Yeah. And after, 
after a learning curve, uh, I, I got it and modifying and learning Fusion 360, the 3D software, um, I was able to get the mold, these laid mold surfaces to print well. And I looked at the, the decal and the mold themselves, which are tremendous, the mold surfaces, the laid mold surfaces are only about $100 to print. Uh -huh. Whereas the decal and the mold are very expensive to print. And it's a lot of material. And it takes a lot of time. Time. Yeah. And I said, well, I can do these on the CNC. I can. Ah, uh -huh. So then I started experimenting with high density urethane foam, which is a foam for the signage company. It's made to go out on a post and last for seven years with no care or maintenance. Okay. So, so it's waterproof. A day and a half in a vat is like jump change yeah so and then uh, timothy barrett or uh, timothy moore has generously put all his profiles up for how he shaped his uh decals and for the cast off paper making and stuff like that so then i was able to pick those profiles up and i'm carving the decals to basically conform to that style shape they're a fitted decal uh, the molds are all ribbed molds um, and they, I'm just really pleased with the, the paper that they make. Um, yes. And you sent me one, I think it makes an eight and a half by 11 inch sheet. And I, right. I've tested it a few times yesterday. I just made some paper again. It's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. So, so all the, the things that I used to, to, to battle, especially with an unribbed mold, where when you're cooching across, you tend to get this wave that tends to blow out the, the, I cooch right to left, so it's tending to blow out that left edge. The uh, laid molds with the ribs, you just get this great looking sheet. And, right. and it happens at the speed of thought. It, mm -hmm. It's not like I'm rolling, I'm pressing. And the thing that absolutely drove me bonkers was if with some of my old eight and a half, 11 molds, if you have to put them down and then you have to sponge the back. I right. just, I, right. I have no tolerance for that. So, uh, so that, that's all so that these solve all that. And, uh, I can make up to an A3 size now, which is um, what, how big is that? Uh, that's basically tabloid size, uh, 11, 17. 11 by 17. Okay. And I'm designing a chancery style, which is the 12 and a half by 18 right now. So, um, and are you I selling these? Yeah, I'm in, in, in the manufacturer. We're good. we're putting. I'm working with somebody. We're going to put up a new website that's going to launch right after the first of the year, and these will be uh, the history, you know, of how they're made, of uh, you know why their advantages. And that the eight and a half eleven mold, uh, like you have, is going to be under three hundred dollars, nice. which is not that much more than what are the student grade molds that aren't ribbed and. And we've sort of gone to this de facto wove surface of the heat shrink polypropylene. And, um, you know, so uh, I think to be able to come back to a, a late surface option is is really refreshing. And yeah. uh, I'm excited about them. Now, so um, your laid screen surface, what are you modeling that after? Is that related to Tim Moore at all or how well yeah and actually Tim uh, Tim Barrett actually uh, and also Don Farnsworth 
they actually talk quite a bit about, um, and Timothy Moore in, in Tim Barrett's book gets into the specific brass uh, sizes of uh, the uh, rods that he used okay. and, and how much gap the chain lines uh, do. So basically, I'm I'm trying to replicate those the traditional uh, molds, you know, 1870s and stuff like that, had about 18 to 21 laid lines per inch, and so I'm right around 18 laid lines per inch with with the ones that I'm doing, and the thing that I'm playing with a little bit right now is that gap between the laid lines, and I'm right at a at a um, 60 40 where the laid lines occupy 40% and the gap is 60% so that they're a little bit more open. I've got some now that are that I've just made that are 50-50, so they're half open. So they'll have a little slower drain time. Uh-huh. And, and then we'll just see how they... When I started doing some watermarks with what I call my watermark beat, beaten fiber, which is cotton linters, pretty aggressively beaten, so that you can, so that they get in and they can form around the watermark. Um, a fair percentage of those tended to slip through the mold surface because the fibers are so short. Uh, so, uh-huh. and the mold surfaces are interchangeable on the mold, so they're just screwed on. Yes, so, I love that. That I asked him more about that years ago when I was doing watermarks because mm-hmm. I. I was trying to go into production with watermarks and I never quite succeeded, but I, yeah, I talked to him about making a mold where I could interchange the screen. So I didn't have to, and I was just using uh, peel off watermarks, but mm-hmm. it would have been handy to just leave them on one and switch out. So that's yeah. a cool feature. Right. So yeah. Yeah. So just with a Phillips yeah. screwdriver, you just unscrew that one and then you can either go to a wove or, or a finer or coarser laid. And we can actually 3d print, watermarks on right. the mold surface too yeah and i'm trying to do a a, a chiaroscuro is that right yeah uh, you know the 3d the, yes you know, i'm trying to to figure figure out in fusion 360 how to create a, a 3d printed thing that'll give us that capability but i just haven't spent the correct number of hours <laughs> fussing with it uh is that what Brian Queen? Oh, Brian Queen has done chiaroscuro somehow 3D printed a different he way. He did that with he did that with laser cut foam. Oh right. Um, yeah. So yeah, that okay. uh, I saw Tom Balbo has some of those and and they were a little dicey because the the pulp tended to stick into the foam, so they were a little tedious to get separation from the foam. So right. That's the um, the kind of the next thing. Um, I feel like I've uh, have crossed some uh, bridge in my own mind that I'm now about done with prototyping and able to get into to production and send a couple of dozen of these things out into the world and, and let them to start to have a life of their own. That's exciting. So really combining technology with uh, ancient traditions. I love that. Um, okay, yeah. so I wanna wrap up with uh, some recommendations. So. One would be your new molds. That's cool. And do you know what that website will be called? Because this podcast will come out it's in February. Be, Logos Graphics. It'll uh, be under. It's, 
It, yeah, it's still be under logosgraphics.net. Yeah, so we're gonna. I debated about keeping that name, but uh, it's you know it's sort of who I've been for a long time. So yeah, we're gonna do it on under that. So yeah, and uh, you know the um, and I I I think it's time to embrace change. You know we um, I in reading about uh, the dominance how wove molds overcame laid molds in the 1870s it was mm -hmm. because the the wire makers were able to make finer wire that they were then able to weave right and so that's sort of i see a similar technological transition right now with the 3d printing and, and things right. like that absolutely and the the threat that i see that covid has placed on all of us is that people are gaining more comfort with a virtual reality. Mm -hmm. And I am deeply concerned for the tactile reality that's the basis for hand paper making, for artist books, and um, for engagement around those things. Um, the clubs that uh, I attend, California Book Club and Colophon Club and Roxbury Club, th those clubs are all aging out. Right. You know? I'm 72 and I'm young uh -huh. <laughs> at those things. So um, in order to remain relevant, um, there ju we just need to understand that there is this sea change um, happening and be pushed forward by it, not driven back by it. And... Um, sort of like a surfer who catches the wave and rides it forward. Mm -hmm. That's, that's, I'm, I'm trying to pick that wave and move forward. And, and part of it is if we can lower the, lower the cost of production for papermaking, if you can make more sheets, if you're a production papermaker in less time, more efficiently with your pulp, that's a plus. And if you can have a mold that you can get a return on investment on, I mean, they sell a great laid mold on uh, Carriage House, but it's a thousand dollars for an eight and a half, eleven mold. Right. The, re the return on investment on that just isn't going to pencil out. For right. A right. So, so those are the kinds of things, you know. Just as digital is trying to get better, faster, cheaper, I think we need to bring those production methodologies to paper making. Um, uh, Richard Siebert, a friend of mine. When he brings an intern in, he makes them go to the job cases and hand set, stop, think, there must be a harder way. Huh. And we need to get away from that mindset in not only the book arts, but also in hand paper production. We have to go stop, think, there must be a better way. Right. Absolutely. And I ha I am really inspired. So I'm 55. So I'm a generation below you. But the generation or two below me, um, like you mentioned, Stephanie Cher, Stephanie Hare of Cher Studios and Kelsey Pike. These are young women who are really um, making a go and making a living, I believe, mm -hmm. with making handmade paper. And those are the first people I've seen in all of these years that I've been involved that are really, I mean, Twin Rocker, there are companies, 
Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, there need to be more ways uh, to do it. And um, I teach online. So I have during COVID, I have had a lot of people interested in learning online. I'm not teaching paper making online yet, but I could see that. So I think the combination of technology and hands on, I, I hope there's hope. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and exactly. that. Uh, <laughs> Hand paper making doesn't die out as it almost has in the past. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, no. thanks for no, your work in uh, helping helping yeah. it stay alive. Yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, great. Well, thanks, Helen. It's been great to visit with you. Yeah, it's been super fun. Thanks, John. Hey, paper friends! Did you know that I write a weekly blog called the Sunday Paper, featuring stories of people doing exciting, innovative, and beautiful things with paper? Sign up at HelenHebertStudio.com slash blog. I'm also creating a lot of content over here, and the best way to stay up to date is to join my newsletter list to learn about free tutorials, online classes, workshops, and the annual Redcliffe Paper Retreat, which takes place right here at Helen Hebert Studio. You can sign up at HelenHebertStudio.com to receive my e-newsletter. This wraps up our episode, and if you enjoyed it, I'd appreciate it if you could leave a review over on iTunes. This helps other people find out about the podcast. Special thanks to Gary A. Hansen for the sound editing and Peter Thomas for the music. Visit HelenHebertStudio.com and click on Paper Talk, where you can find out more about them, subscribe to the series via iTunes, and listen to other episodes and access all of the archived shows. I'll talk to you soon. Besides the season, the main contains